0: June 5th, 1978, quite some years ago now. Some of you will remember the story. It was a Canadian headline tragedy. A seven-year-old boy, his name was Martin Turgeon, slipped off a wharf and fell into the Prairie River just outside of Calgary. And at least a dozen adults watched him struggle for several minutes before he went under. Why didn't anyone dive in to save him? Upstream from the place where he'd slipped and fallen in were a series of factories and treatment plants that had been dumping chemicals and raw sewage into the river for years to the point now where the water was so dirty and pungent that people would scarcely even dip a toe into it, let alone jump right into it. And so nobody went in after Martin Turgeon. It's... It's a story that's striking, not just in the way that it contrasts with what we hope is best and noblest about human beings and valor, but, but the way that it also corresponds with an unspeaking view that many people carry in their heads about what God is like. We like to imagine that God is there standing on the wharf, watching people struggling with their way through life. Maybe with a finger outstretched in a scolding way. Maybe the the celestial equivalent of some kind of cosmic Santa Claus keeping a naughty list over here and a nice list there. Maybe standing at least on the wharf and shouting out directions. You know, kick your way a little harder, you can make it to shore. Get cleaned up and then come see me. Whatever else Christmas may be, Christmas is a challenge to that disconcerting understanding of God. And it's challenging, I think, because, I mean, let's be honest, we have cleaned up the Christmas story so well that we take everything toxic out of it. It becomes to us a nostalgia-filled event that's as much about Hollywood musicals as it is about God jumping into the toxic waters of humanity. It's a it's a story that, that cleans up nicely on stage as we, as we make it child-friendly and, and dramatically compelling and, and just nice and neat. We fill it with high-calorie, sugary treats, and we do our very best not to engage with the truth underneath it, which is embedded in that one word that, that John, you read for us in the Christmas story. The word Emmanuel, which means quite literally, with us, the God, or the with us God, if you'd like. We weaken it, and we should never do this when we say things like God draws near. Now, it's not just God drawing near, it means quite literally God is with us. One of the best illustrations of this that I know of comes from a little book called Miracles that C.S. Lewis wrote in the 1950s. This is what he said Imagine a pearl diver. First, reducing himself to nakedness, and then glancing up in midair, and then gone with a splash, vanishing down through green and warm water, then into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, Lungs almost bursting until suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both covered now that they've come up into the light. That, Lewis says, is the Christmas story. In Jesus, God strips himself naked in order to plunge into the murky waters of the world. He vanishes as he plunges deeper and deeper into the oozy waters of life. And he does it quite remarkably for us. Because, again, unbelievably, he deems that there is something in us that is absolutely precious. Now, we'd, uh, we'd scarcely see that in the Christmas story sometimes, the way we get it dressed up. And we'd scarcely imagine that that's appropriate behavior for God, right? A nice, decent deity would probably do it differently. Send an angel, send some sacred text, give advice. We'd probably consider that a God, a neat and righteous God, a respecting God, a a fearful God, wouldn't get involved in the muck and mire of day-to-day life here. And yes, clearly God has communicated through angels and, and has communicated through sacred texts. But Christmas, Christmas is that divine plunge into the mess of the world that says, you know what, this is not about religious instruction. And this is not about a remote, aloof God shouting out from the horizons of history what might be done if you might ever consider the possibility of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, this is God wading into the putrid waters and becoming vulnerable for us. And when you think about it, there is nothing more vulnerable in the world than a fetus floating in the amniotic waters of its mother. That's beyond decent, isn't it? This is a reckless kind of cavalier, over-the-top, dangerous, remarkable love on God's behalf. One of the ironies, I think, of, of this stage in history is that the Christmas story is probably more widely available than it ever has been. In, in more languages and more places in the world, through more different venues of communication, and yet it is probably less known for what it's really about than it's ever been. Uh, you may have heard the storyline. You may know some of the characters. There's Mary and Joseph and and an angel by the name of Gabriel, and there's some some sheep herders and three kings, except. There may not have been three, and they actually weren't kings. And there's all of that, the details of the nice pantomime that we put on at Christmas. But the majority of people who benefit from that storyline have never actually heard the real story, the story that's told in narrative form by a tax collector named Matthew. And that's the one we heard read today. A story that's told also in narrative form by a doctor named Luke. But a story that's told remarkably in poetic form, By a fisherman named John. And I want to read you that version of the story. John's story. His Christmas narrative. And here's how it begins. In the beginning, the fisherman writes. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God right there in the beginning. And through him all things that were made. All things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all people might believe. Now he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world that was made through him did not recognize him. He came to that which was his very own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God children born not from natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will but born of God and so the word became flesh and made his dwelling place among us and we have beheld his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth and really the The word wow should get written into the margins of Scripture right there. Wow. I've wondered as I've read that in the other accounts whether the the participants in, in the first event really understood what was happening. Did the angels who sung about the birth to the shepherds understand what a staggering thing was happening that night? Did the shepherds who ran to the stable in response understand just how appropriate it was that they would bow before this manger? Did Mary, who gave birth to the baby and held him in her arms, know exactly what it is she was holding? And Luke tells us poignantly that that after it all happened, Mary pondered these things in her heart, was reflecting on them. Did, Did she ever really get it in those first moments? And if she did, how do you handle that kind of staggering realization? So here's what really happened. Here's the Christmas story, according to John. The one who made the world entered into the world in person. The one who created everything became a creature, a human being. That's the real story that seldom surfaces in the middle of all the other celebration. That's the good news that ought to be on headlines of every newspaper, ought to get tweeted out worldwide tomorrow night. And all I can say is... It is as unbelievable a proclamation as anything that has ever been made. I mean, unbelievable, not, not in the sense that you shouldn't believe it, but the way sportscasters, you know, what an unbelievable feat. What an unbelievable thing this is. I mean, I can believe that there is a living God. I can believe that if there is a living God, he has the capacity to create, to make things. And that he's made all kinds of things. Maybe even he's made everything. I can believe that a living, creating God is able to do miraculous feats of wonder in the world. But this, what God did on Christmas Eve. The idea that that while Caesar Augustus was the emperor in Rome or Quirinius was the governor in Syria. That the living God entered the full orb of human existence and did so as a baby. Have you ever heard anything so utterly fantastic? The creator becoming a creature. God now is a human being. Unbelievable. I mean, you see why we say that that most people who celebrate Christmas have never heard the real story. We we read about a Jewish boy born to a privileged Jewish couple on some starlit night and and yes, many have heard that that Jewish boy had around him claims to be Messiah. And thousands of people will throck to concert halls to, to hear, uh, hear sung pieces like Handel's Messiah. But most have not heard that that little boy was in fact, as one writer said, quite literally and exactly, the God by whom all things were made. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God And the word was God. One translator puts it pictorially, says, the word moved into the neighborhood, took up residence among us. Unbelievable. And actually, the word for word, hear me out, in the beginning was the word, that John the fisherman is using here is a fascinating word. It's the word logos. Kind of looks like logos when you see it in print. With the word logos, I'm amazed that that word existed in a fisherman's vocabulary. But this is one smart fisherman, right? Why does he begin his story this way? Calling Jesus the logos. Why not use one of the many, many other terms that were so favored by him? Why not son? In the beginning was the son. The son was with God and the son was God and all things came into being by him. Why not begin that way? Or lots of the other terms that circulated around Jesus. Son of man, Messiah, Lamb. How about Lord? In the beginning was the Lord, and the Lord was with God, and the Lord was God, and all things came into being because of him. Why not say it that way? Why? Because John is trying to embrace the widest possible audience he could in the world. And that word logos had hooks into every culture in the known world of John's day, it was a powerful, significant, often used and greatly revered word. For the Greeks, the ruling intellectual power of that part of the world, logos, meant the the rational principle behind everything in the universe. The logos was the source of life. We We kind of get that when we use the word logic or logical from the same word. For, for philosophers, it was the integrating principle behind everything. It's what makes the laws of nature work. It's what maintains order. It's what gives the world, world beauty and, and coherence and unity. So in the beginning was the rational integ- integrating principle of the universe. And that rational integrating principle of the universe, it doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? Yeah. For the Jewish people, Logos was... The force of creation itself. The pure creative will of God. They called the Logos the captain and pilot of the universe. Kind of like that one. In the beginning was the captain and pilot of the universe. I agree, says the great Jewish philosopher Philo. And the captain and pilot of the universe was with God. I agree, says Philo again. And the captain and pilot was God. What? What? And the captain and pilot of the universe became flesh and dwelled among us. No way. Impossible. For most of the people of John's day, we had this incredible, powerful concept of logos as the impact, the force of the living God, the way that God communicates and reveals himself, the vehicle of creation. Genesis 1, you know, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and God Logos. God spoke, and it all came into being. The means by which God acts in the world, the creating, revealing, redeeming power of God, God's self expression, all that was bound up in this one little word that we translate Word, capital W. In the beginning was the powerful self expression of God's creative wonder. In the world. And it took on flesh. Unbelievable. And John begins on this kind of mind-boggling note to make sure that the rest of the story makes sense. He wants us to know that Mary's child, this man from Galilee, who walks with and eats with and plays with real flesh and blood human beings, is none other than the maker of the universe. The man who laughed so hard that the religious establishment accused him of public drunkenness. That the man who wept so deeply at the grave of his friend Lazarus is, is, is none other than the ground of being itself. The man who, who got so tired and thirsty that he asked a foreigner, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water is the one who in the beginning made hydrogen atoms over here and oxygen atoms over here and thought if you put together two of these with one of these, you get water. And now he has to ask someone else for a drink. There's nothing anywhere in any other area of human literature or mythology or anything that can compare to the human experience of understanding the truth of the Christmas story at this level. Come at it a different way. By conservative estimates, there are 10 billion trillion stars in the known universe. 10 billion trillion. That's 10 for the engineers among you, Harold 10 to the power of 15 zeros. By him, all things were made. At the center of our solar system is a star, we call it the sun. Every minute, that sun pours out 6 billion quadrillion calories. That's more than will be consumed at my Christmas table this year. That's six followed by 27 zeros every minute. By him, that and everything else was made. And we're told that the energy of our own sun is nothing compared to that of galaxies discovered recently by astrophysicists. 300 million light years away, there's one that shines with 2 trillion times greater energy than our own sun. 2 trillion times. I mean, the numbers begin to defy imagination. But get this. When Caesar Augustus thought he was ruling the world, The one who spoke all of the galaxies and stars into their whirling orbits in space appeared speechless inside a cattle trough. And when Quirinius was governor in Syria, the star maker himself entrusted its very life into the uterus of a teenage girl. When Herod the Great was strutting his power across the scene, God, the Logos, needs a mother to feed him and swaddle him to sleep. Unbelievable. The term that theologians use for this grand miracle is the word incarnation, in flesh. In this. Christmas is celebrating the enfleshment of God, and this will be the sign. Is what we heard read this morning. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. I mean, forgive me for saying it again, but unbelievable. For centuries, people have been trying to express the wonder behind what happened here. Charles Wesley, one of the great writers of hymns and carols, he put it this way, and you've already sung it this season, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead sees. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. C.S. Lewis, we heard from him a little bit earlier, wrote a children's fairy tale, The Chronicles of Narnia. At one point he says, you know, in our world there is too a stable that once held something in it bigger than the whole world. Modern day musicians, Keith Getty, Stuart Townen, have tried. This is how they phrased it. They said, Hands that set each star in space, shape the universe in darkness, cling now to a mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. And my favorite is a poet, a woman named Lucy Shaw, who puts these words on the lips of the mother Mary and says, Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps whose eyelids have never closed before. Older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am. Nailed to my poor planet. Caught so that I might be free. Blind in my womb to know my darkness ended. Brought to this birth For me to be newborn, and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Unbelievable. Of course, the implications of all this are are really quite staggering. Let me just name a couple, and then we need to do something about it. I need to sing and dance and shout and like it just makes sense for what it is. Unbelievable. You know, God didn't become an angel. God did not become an eagle or a deer or a whale. God became a human being and in so doing forever dignified this, this, this flesh and blood. God so loves us that God became us. Unbelievable. And if the real story be told, we discover in it the unbelievable depth of the love of God. He loved us so much that at one point he actually changed his mode of being. God who had existed eternally as spirit now takes on flesh, changing the form of his existence, trapped for a time within the confines of flesh and blood so that we could be free All the unbelievable wonders of the depth of the love of God. Christmas expresses not the sympathy of God, but the empathy of God. And you know the difference? You can have sympathy from afar. Empathy requires you to be up close. Sympathy requires that you acknowledge what a person is feeling. Empathy means that you feel it because you've been there and you're there with them. The word became flesh, God in humanity, in pain and in grief and, and the mess of the putrid rivers of the world. What is it that Christmas declares? It's it's God who hangs there on a tree. It's, it's God who experiences firsthand violence and injustice. Indeed, nobody experienced it to the extent that he did. And if the real story be told, the Christmas story is quite simply this, that we have an unbelievable hope and certainty for the future. Because on that that night long ago, in that little stable, God forever wed himself to humanity. He tied up his future with our future. The future of humanity is as secure as the future of God. And the enfleshment of God is the guarantee that one day all flesh will be changed. Jesus would say it this way, because I live, you will live also. And if the real story be told, all the claims that Jesus make have this unbelievable believability to them. If Jesus, Mary's son, is in fact the living God in human flesh, then he can say things like, I am the bread of life. And of course, he can say, I am the light of the world. And he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Mary's boy is the God to whom we all must one day give an account, then when he says, your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. And if Mary's boy is the creator wrapped up in flesh, And he cries out from the cross, it is finished. You can believe it's complete. If the Almighty comes to earth as one of us and says, follow me. And you can be certain he knows the way that he's going. And it makes all the sense in the world to line up behind him and follow. If the real story be told, we realize how unbelievably right it was for shepherds to fall down on their knees long ago. And if the real story be told, how unbelievably true and correct it was for the smartest intellects of the day, the astronomers from Persia, to leave their work and travel thousands of miles across an Arabian desert in search of the child and to fall down and worship him. If the real story be told, you know just how appropriate it is that today, along with millions and millions of people around the world, We get to fall down on our knees and worship in the name of Jesus. There was a Christmas card that circulated a bit a few years ago. I haven't seen it since, which is too bad. But it said it really well. It said the word did not become a philosophy to be discussed, a theory to be debated, a concept to be pondered. The word became a person to be followed And enjoyed and loved. In the beginning was the Word. Logos was with God. The Word was God. You came into being because of Him. And He came into being here. For all of us. Unbelievable, right? I'm going to invite the worship team to the stage Because I think you can't sit still when the reality of the story sinks in. And I, I don't want you to sit still. I'm going to pray for us quickly, and then we're going to let them loose to rock us out the back doors on this Christmas Sunday. Let's pray. God, somewhere in the familiar details of the story, help us to find the shocking truth at the center. And somehow, to conjure up the wonder, the, just the staggering sense of privilege that comes in knowing that, that you took on flesh, you became like us, and you did it for us. Allow us to take that with us. So that whenever it feels like the stress of busyness or the anxiety of, of family gatherings or or just the unrelenting sense that there's too much to be done, when those things threaten to overwhelm us, we could see how they pale in comparison to the awesome beauty and majesty of what happened on that night long ago. And it's news worth seeking, worth loving, worth shouting to the world. And we'll shout it out in Jesus' name. Amen.